It's July 1719, off the coast of West Africa. The Royal Rover is anchored in the Gulf of Guinea, a few hundred miles away from the island of Principe, where days ago, Captain Howell Davis was slaughtered by island militia. Aboard the pirate sloop, the crew have just elected their new captain, Bartholomew Roberts, who Davis relied on for his excellent navigation and seamanship. Roberts' first act as captain is to avenge the death of his mentor. It doesn't matter that the pirates bombarded the harbor with cannon fire before escaping last time. It is not enough. A few days later, under cover of darkness, the Royal Rover returns to Principe. Roberts orders Walter Kennedy, another one of Davis's top men, to lead the invasion party of 30 vengeful pirates. After all, Kennedy had been ashore with Davis and knows the landscape. Roberts has some doubts about Kennedy, but he's the right man for this particular job. He later describes him as bold and daring, but also very wicked and profligate. Kennedy is told to show no mercy and to decimate the town. They make landfall and storm the Portuguese fort. Terror surges through the populace as the pirates run amok, catching the people by surprise. Locals flee for their lives as the pirates pick them off one by one. Others meet their end with the point of a cutlass piercing their bellies. It's bloody and ruthless. And this time, the militia isn't prepared. Soldiers flee their posts, unable to compete with the firepower or the ferocity of Robert's men. Within a short time, the fort is deserted. Victims lay strewn on the streets, and the pirates raid the town for whatever valuables they can find. Others set fire to the buildings and throw the enemy's cannons and guns into the harbor. On the deck of the Royal Rover, there's a devilish twinkle in Roberts' cold, dark eyes as he watches the glowing fires ashore. For a man who until recently was resistant to the very idea of piracy, it's a dramatic turnaround. And this is only the beginning. Captain Bartholomew Roberts is about to unleash unimaginable destruction and untold horror on both sides of the Atlantic, from West Africa to the Caribbean. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? 
terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Bartholomew Roberts is one of the most significant and most successful names in pirate history. He is known for his democratic rule and strict personal convictions, resulting in creating and enforcing his own version of the pirate code. However, his place in the pantheon of pirates has long been overshadowed by names like Blackbeard and Captain Kidd. But in his day, Bart Roberts was perhaps the most feared pirate on the seven seas with a trail of devastation following in his wake. Bart Roberts is credited with seizing over 400 ships, murdering countless innocents, and barbarously obliterating his enemies during his reign of terror. But after his death, Roberts's fame took a back seat to the more romanticized pirate figures. Today, some might know Roberts by his moniker Black Bart, but that name was never used during his lifetime. So who is this ruthless pirate captain? The only account we have of his physical appearance comes from a general history of pirates. 18th century chronicler Charles Johnson tells us Roberts is tall and dark and of good natural parts and personal bravery. Roberts wears fine clothes, typically wearing a waistcoat and breeches. A gold chain dangles around his clean-shaven neck and a large hat with a feather stuck in it sits on his head. The very image of a gentleman. But Roberts is no gentry seaman. He's a self-made man. He also abstains from heavy consumption of alcohol, won't gamble, and he demands live music be played on his ship, except on Sundays, where the Sabbath is observed. Roberts is not your usual pirate commander. He's one of a kind. So where did this pirate with moral convictions come from? It's believed Roberts is born in Wales, near Haverford West, in a little village called Castnoeth Bar in 1682. As a young man, he joins the Merchant Navy, where he learns his skills as a navigator and seaman. Little did Roberts know when he accepted the first mate position aboard the slave ship Princess of London in early 1719, that this voyage to West Africa would result in his capture by the pirate Howell Davis, where he reluctantly entered into the pirate life. During Roberts' six weeks sailing with Davis, his attitude towards piracy starts to change. 
Having already impressed his crewmates, when Davis dies, accepting the role of captain is a logical step forward. As Roberts says, that since he had dipped his hands in muddy water and must be a pirate, it was better being a commander than a common man. If he's reluctant in the beginning, before long he will be a wholly committed pirate. Charles Johnson reports Roberts as later making a stirring speech, proclaiming the risks of hanging are well worth the liberty of a life under the black flag. He says, In an honest service there is thin commons, low wages and hard labor. In this, plenty and satiety, pleasure and ease, liberty and power. And who would not balance creditor on this side, when all the hazard that is run for it, at worst, is only a sour look or two at choking. No, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. Most of these pirates begin their careers in some sort of legitimate employment on the sea and by whatever twist of fate find themselves aboard a pirate ship. The criminal risk is so much higher in Robert's time, and everyone is aware of that. And that really transforms the dynamics on the ship. Robert's and other men like him have to start making this calculation of how likely is it, if we are captured, that I will be considered a prisoner and not a pirate? Because it's not that long after Robert's is captured that Davis is killed, and Robert's emerges suddenly as a leader. I think it's very possible that Roberts made the transition more quickly or that he was just naturally, opportunistically inclined to sort of, if I'm gonna be stuck on the ship, I might as well be in charge. Having avenged Captain Davis's death, Roberts quickly leads his crew to several victories. In late July, 1719, he captures his first big prize, a Dutch slave ship off of Cape Lopez followed swiftly by an English slave ship. From the English, the pirates take 23 kilos of gold dust and press the crew into involuntary servitude aboard the Royal Rover. After two more additional raids, Roberts has decided that the crew must find new hunting grounds. The options are the East Indies or Brazil. Casting votes, the pirates elect to trek back across the Atlantic for Brazil. This was a debate that would often transpire on ships in the West African region, which was, should we sail around the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean, or should we sail west to the Caribbean and Brazil? I think Roberts had a couple of very good reasons to go west. One of them is Brazil is much less likely to be a place where he is going to run into British warships. It's not a corner of the Atlantic that is going to be heavily patrolled by you know, authorities that will pursue him for the things that he's already done for his association with Davis. Which is not to say that the Portuguese would not hang British pirates. Of course they would do that. But he is obviously you know, looking for somewhere where potentially he could approach a ship and not immediately be clocked as a threat or as a criminal. In autumn 1719, Roberts arrives on the east coast of Brazil. For the last nine weeks, 
He has kept a weather eye out for ships ripe for the taking. But none have revealed themselves. If no prey turns up, they'll have to move on empty-handed. Making one final sweep of the coast, a cry from the lookout signals that a ship has finally come into view. Roberts emerges from the captain's cabin, his boots clapping on the deck. Two pairs of pistols dangle from the silk sash slung across his chest, as Johnson says is according to the fashion of pirates. And it's not just one ship that has been spotted. There's a second and a third. Soon it's a mass of sails, a convoy. A fleet of 42 Portuguese merchant vessels sit in the Bay of Los Todos Santos. It's the Lisbon fleet of treasure ships. And as luck would have it, right now, the fleet is currently awaiting the arrival of the two warships who will escort them home. Roberts sees a golden opportunity. But even without their escort, is it wise for one pirate ship to take on a fleet of 42? The Portuguese, in part because they were sick of being attacked by pirates, had developed this convoy system as a security measure, right? It made total sense. You know, you group all your ships together, you go en masse. The security of a convoy brings with it a security flaw, which is complacency. And it seems very possible that Roberts understood that if he could get close enough to one of these vessels, you know, the very fact that they felt so safe would make them potentially an easier target to overwhelm. It's sundown. Taking inspiration from his late mentor, Howell Davis, Roberts opts for creative deception. Flying Portuguese colors, he brings the Royal Rover alongside one of the smallest ships and presents himself as a fellow merchantman. In what might be the smoothest capture in pirate history, at gunpoint, Roberts orders the Portuguese captain to come aboard, but warns him that any signal of distress will result in his men boarding and killing everyone. The Portuguese crew look upon the dirty faces, ratty hair, wild beards, and the array of weapons strapped to the pirates. They are, understandably, afraid for their lives. The captain orders his men not to do anything, and he boards the pirate vessel. Roberts takes the captive below, into the damp, dank hold lit by swaying oil lamps. Here, the Portuguese captain is interrogated. The most important question Roberts wants an answer to, which ship is hoarding the most riches? Sweating nervously, the hostage glances at the pistols aimed at his head. He knows if he doesn't cooperate, he will die. So he gives up the ship. The Portuguese captain is locked up, while Roberts beelines for a merchant ship called the Sagrada Familia, crewed by 170 sailors and armed with 40 cannons. This one ship alone outguns the pirates. But again, surprise is on their side. The Royal Rover is nearly on top of them before the captain of the Sagrada Familia realizes what's happening. He orders the crew to prepare for a fight. The Portuguese get a couple of shots off, but it's no good. They're too slow to react. Roberts gives the order to fire, 
broadsiding the merchant ship and disorienting her crew. Coming alongside, the pirates toss grappling hooks and swing over. Boarding, the two crews go at each other. But Roberts' men prove too much and quickly overpower the merchant sailors. Many of the Portuguese are wounded and a few lie dead on the deck. Roberts has successfully seized the ship, but time is of the essence. The other ships in the convoy have witnessed the attack and now raise the alarm, firing warning shots to signal the warships currently anchored in the harbor. Roberts must be quick, and he is. Before the warships can raise anchor and intervene, Roberts unloads the merchant crew and takes flight. In total, he has made off with the Sagrada Familia and 90,000 gold moidores, gold and silver chains and valuable jewels, as well as tobacco, sugar, and animal skins. In addition, an ornate crucifix set with diamonds, a gift for the King of Portugal. It's an incredible haul and an amazing bit of pirating. But once again, the details come down to us from Johnson's sometimes fantastical A General History of the Pirates. I am always suspicious of Johnson because whenever Johnson has a hole in a story, he will fill it, right, in the best possible way. We have this sort of reconstruction that Johnson supplies, and we have allusions to this particular attack in some of the depositions where they mention that this happens, but they don't go into detail of exactly how it happens. However the attack actually happened, we do know Roberts successfully captures the fleet's primary treasure ship. Many call this the biggest score in pirate history. But is it really? It's a phrase we hear all too often. In truth, determining the real value of a pirate haul from contemporary sources is a tricky business. I'll be the party pooper as usual and say, there are a couple of dynamics that are at play in early 18th century Atlantic society that consistently militate towards inflating these kinds of holes, right? One is insurance. If you're insured, you want to absolutely overstate the value of every single thing that was plundered by a pirate. So sometimes we have these valuations that are quoted in newspapers and that will filter their way into Johnson and other sort of contemporary literature, which are pulled from sort of what the owners of the ship claimed was taken. Obviously, this was a substantial prize, right? There was a large amount of treasure on board, but whoever owned what was taken is obviously going to value it at the highest possible rate they can figure out, either to sort of try and get restitution from someone or at the very least to their insurers. The other people we hear about what was taken from were pirates, either captured pirates or pirates who were perhaps telling stories to other sailors. Again, kind of heavily incentivized, you know, to sort of play up how incredible the riches they found were. So in that respect, and this kind of applies to all of these biggest raids of all time situations, there is always going to be a bit of inflation. We may never know the true financial value of Roberts's score, but it is safe to say it was large. Now, Roberts is in the wind with no sign of the Portuguese merchants or warships on his tail, and his luck is holding. While on the hunt for a secluded island, he captures a brig 
a vessel with two square-rigged masts, which he renames the Fortune. Presumably its cargo includes fine alcohol and fresh food. It's reported the pirates are elated with the booty and are in search of a place to retreat where they might give themselves up to all pleasures that luxury and wantonness could bestow. Roberts makes for Devil's Island, what is today a small spit of land just off French Guiana. Upon landing, the diamond-studded crucifix is offered to the governor there in return for a safe haven. It works. Roberts is met with civility and trades goods with the governor and factory. But a pirate's job is never done. A lookout spots a brigantine from Rhode Island, likely to be stuffed with provisions. But that's not the only thing out there. Storm clouds are brewing. Nevertheless, Roberts decides to take 40 men aboard the smaller Fortune and chase down the brigantine. Setting off, Walter Kennedy, Robert's second, is left in charge of the Royal Rover and Sagrada Familia, and the cache of Portuguese treasure stowed in the hold. The storm makes it difficult for Roberts. The fortune struggles against the wind and rain. Tall waves crash over the deck, sweeping sailors off of their feet. Roberts and the helmsman try to keep their eyes on the brigantine, but the torrential rain makes visibility almost impossible. Soon enough, the ship is lost, and the fortune is tossed and steered off course. The chase is over. The pirates have no other option but to stay put until the storm passes. For eight days, the fortune is windbound, waiting for the dangerous conditions to lift. When the pirates do eventually return to Devil's Island, they're in for a nasty surprise. Walter Kennedy, the Royal Rover, the Sagrada Familia, and the crews are gone, taking with them all the plunder from the raid on the Portuguese treasure fleet. Some wonder if Kennedy left to find them. Others wonder if they were captured. Neither is true. From the locals on Devil's Island, Roberts learns that Kennedy simply assumed command of the fleet and sailed away a few days after he went to chase the brigantine. One could imagine the scene aboard the Fortune. Furious pirates bicker and curse Kennedy. Others just sit silently, in total disbelief. Roberts, too, bites his tongue. He's been betrayed by one of his top lieutenants. He is furious at Kennedy's treachery. Charles Johnson tells us, this was mortification with a vengeance. A pit forms in Robert's stomach as the men vent their wrath. Many want Kennedy found and strung up by his neck. Kennedy absconding with these ships is something that Roberts learns a painful lesson from and something that he will spend the rest of his career attempting to figure out a better way to manage this kind of delegation. He ultimately had to put someone in charge and he can't put just anyone in charge. He has to find someone who has skills to be able to actually captain a vessel effectively. So there's a limited pool of people who could necessarily take up that role. And Kennedy may have been one of very few options that he had available to him. It's also early on in his career, so it's possible that for Roberts, he hadn't ever really considered this possibility until it became a very unfortunate reality. 
But perhaps there's another explanation for Kennedy's supposed betrayal of Roberts. As we've seen before, the commander must often bend to the will of his crew, and though brotherhood is important, at the end of the day, pirates are in it for the money. I'm trying to ask, what is Kennedy thinking? Roberts is gone for a few days. He's like, well, maybe he ran across the wrong ship. Maybe that storm drove him ashore and he shipwrecked. I don't want to stick around waiting for uh, waiting for that, you know, potentially the wrong ship to turn up and get us as well. And he has a crew of rambunctious pirates who are like, we're already sitting on a huge treasure. We'll just get larger shares if we head off right now. So, you know, in some ways, he may have been pressured into that, you know, may not be necessarily a personal betrayal by Kennedy. He might have potentially not been keen on it and found himself in a situation where he's like, well, if I don't sail off with this ship, maybe someone else will. Roberts will never know the reason for the betrayal, but says that there will be no further mention of this Kennedy. The lesson is learned. He doesn't chase down the treacherous pirates. Instead, Roberts allows fate to take its course. He knows if Kennedy's in charge, the crew are in for their own surprise. Kennedy is illiterate and a terrible navigator. It's unlikely to turn out well. Despite losing his ship and treasure to Kennedy, Roberts isn't stopping. But the law must be laid down. Moving forward, this will not happen again. Like a pirate Moses, Bart Roberts sets out his famous 11 pirate articles, his 11 commandments. Johnson says, Roberts could think that an oath would be obligatory where defiance had been given to the laws of God and man, I can't tell you, but he thought their greatest security lay in this, that it was everyone's interest to observe them. Ships' articles are nothing new, but Roberts' version is perhaps the best preserved of the pirate contracts that have survived to this day. Within these new articles, every man is allowed to vote in ship affairs. Defrauding fellow crewmen will be punishable by marooning. No person is to play cards or dice for money. Weapons are to be clean and ready for battle at all times. Further codes prohibit women or boys from coming aboard or sailing with the crew. This is to ensure no romantic jealousies or arguments arise amongst the crew. Any deserters will be punished by death. There'll be no fighting aboard. Quarrels must be ended by sword or pistol ashore. The Sabbath is to be a day of rest, at least for the ship's musicians, who presumably must otherwise keep the crew entertained. And as if to underline the principles of fairness and equality, all plunder would be divided equally and physical injuries are to be compensated should any man lose a limb in battle. For sailors who once served aboard harsh naval or merchant ships, having health insurance as a pirate is no doubt a welcome benefit. Roberts' articles are historic testament to pirate ideology and the practicalities of 18th century maritime life. But are these articles actually what Roberts wrote? Unfortunately, even this is reported by word of mouth. Johnson says, these, we are assured, were some of Roberts' articles. But as the pirates had taken care to throw overboard the original they had signed and sworn to, there is a great deal of room to suspect the remainder contains something too horrid to be disclosed. Johnson gives us the articles, then at the end he says, or at least this is what 
I believe the articles were because the originals were destroyed, which gives Johnson a little bit of editorial room to maneuver, so to speak. Bearing that caveat in mind, what do we make of these articles? Obviously, by this point, some set of articles was a pretty well-established convention and something that stretched back to the privateering crews of the mid-17th century. Roberts knows establishing articles is the only way to keep the crew under his thumb and avoid another Kennedy-like incident. Curiously, for murdering, thieving villains, the pirates seal the deal in a time-honored Christian manner, initiated by an oath taken on a Bible, reserved for that purpose only. More invention or historical fact? We'll never know. One angle that Johnson consistently falls back on is he wants to build pirates as villains, but he also wants them to be sympathetic, gallant Englishmen. He obviously understood that pirates had to be villains, but he also wanted to sort of give them a certain degree of sympathetic character, right? So they were Christian. If you are going to have someone take an oath, particularly in the 18th century, you need some object that carries with it a real moral weight. And the Bible to this day is still that object in so many contexts for us, right? Even though America is a very secular society today. With the pirate articles now in place, Robert sets off with the 10-gun fortune. He makes his way from the coast of Brazil towards the Caribbean. En route, he successfully takes a number of sloops from Rhode Island and a galley from Bristol. While off Barbados, Bart's crew is joined by another rogue, Montigny La Palisse, a small-time French pirate and captain of the ship The Sea King. But this alliance is also short-lived. It's February 1720. Roberts's continued attacks are drawing attention. Two privateering ships out of Barbados are hunting Roberts, the Philippa and the Somerset. Between the two vessels, they carry 122 sailors, three times the amount on Roberts's ship, the Fortune. It's February 26th. It's been a quiet day for the pirates, but that's about to change. On the horizon, Robert spots the sails of two ships from Barbados, and both vessels are coming towards them, seemingly unaware of the pirates. Roberts believes them to be merchant ships and gives the order to engage. The Fortune and the Sea King prepare for battle, making ready the guns and boarding parties. Approaching the two ships, Roberts orders the black flag to be hoisted. As it goes up, whipping fiercely in the wind, the Barbados ship turns about. But they won't get away so easily. The fortune quickly gains on them. All Roberts doesn't know is that he's sailing headfirst into a trap. The ships are now within earshot, and Roberts shouts, prepare to be boarded. But suddenly, it's the pirates who are under attack. One ship called the Somerset turns and unleashes a volley of cannonballs, a full broadside. The pirates aboard the Fortune are thrown off of their feet. These ships are not merchants' vessels at all. They're privateers, 
Roberts has been fooled. He orders his crew to return fire. The Somerset takes the brunt of the first volley. Roberts looks for help from his new companion. The Seeking is nowhere to be seen. With the fortune drawing the attention of the privateers, De Palis has taken the opportunity to retreat. They quietly slip away unnoticed. Meanwhile, Roberts and the privateers continue exchanging fire. Roberts knows his 10-gun sloop is no match for the two privateer vessels. He, too, orders a retreat. The fortune comes about, putting its stern to the pirate hunters. The wind catches the sails and quickly propels the pirates forward. The Somerset is hot on their tail, but the second privateer cannot keep up. Roberts watches his enemy gain on him. Looking around, he desperately considers how to thwart his pursuers. In the heat of the moment, Roberts has an idea. To gain speed, the pirates begin to toss their heavy goods overboard. Guns and cargo are dumped into the ocean. Little by little, the fortune is getting lighter and faster. To Robert's relief, the Somerset cannot keep up. He watches as their pursuers shrink into the distance. The pirates cheer. They've got away. But the escape comes at a cost. Not only have the pirates had to sacrifice guns and goods, but their vessel has also sustained heavy damage. Roberts' crew is also worse for wear. A number of his men are badly wounded. Some lie dead or dying. The pirates navigate to the Caribbean island of Dominica to make repairs and take stock. On the island, Roberts' luck finally starts to improve. He discovers 13 Englishmen who have been marooned there by the French. All of them happily join his crew. After the losses he sustained, gaining new willing deckhands is a huge boost. But the writing is on the wall. If Roberts' crew didn't know it before, they certainly do now. Pirating in the Caribbean is not what it used to be. The risks are far greater and the rewards far less. No doubt many amongst the crew start to harbor concerns about lingering too long in the region. Over the next few weeks, Roberts avoids privateers from Barbados as well as French naval ships from nearby Martinique. The governor there, having learned of Roberts' presence, increases the naval patrols, giving orders to destroy the pirate menace in the area. But Roberts is undeterred. The colonies of Barbados and Martinique have made an enemy, an enemy they will come to fear. He orders a new flag to be produced, one that will send a clear message to the authorities seeking his death. His new Jolly Roger is a warning sign, aimed directly at the offending colonies. It features an image of Roberts himself, raising a flaming sword into the air. Under each of his two feet, lies a skull. One is marked with ABH and the other AMH, meaning a Barbadian's head and a Martinican's head. This is a move from generalized threatening images 
to very specific particular constituencies that Roberts has beef with at this point. And I suppose it does speak in some ways to how did Roberts respond to a threat? He responded in kind, right? If you were going to threaten me, I'm going to threaten you right back. Going forward, he is building a reputation that if you cross him, he will remember that. It's June 1720. Roberts knows he can't stay in the West Indies. His ship is not powerful enough to take on the slew of pirate hunters as well as British and French naval vessels. But there's also another reason to hunt in new waters for a while. The weather is about to change, with hurricane season swiftly approaching. Roberts, like all good sailors, knows to respect nature's supremacy at sea. The wrecks and rotting hulls that line every Caribbean island stand testament to that. He tells his crew they will sail north, far north, beyond the reach of the British and French navies, to the frozen climes beyond Nova Scotia and Quebec. Roberts has set his sight on Newfoundland. The harsh, squall-beaten island, populated only by whalers and fishermen, lucrative industries themselves, and fertile grounds for recruiting hardened mariners. Roberts' career is only just beginning. Kennedy's mutiny left him embittered and left his crew of 40 empty-handed. But now they are slowly, steadily, inching their way back. With pirate articles in place, any who betrays Roberts will face his wrath. His determination and savagery are about to erupt making him one of the most ruthless and most successful pirates of the Golden Age. Next time on Real Pirates. Bart Roberts is going to unleash hell on Newfoundland, raiding countless ships, executing or marooning his enemies. His firepower is about to increase as he grows his crew and fleet of pirate ships making him an almost unstoppable force on water and pushing West Indies trade into crisis. But his relentless attacks will grow his fame. Soon his name will be known across the region, putting him firmly in the sights of imperial authorities. Find out next time on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Luke Coons. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Mm -hmm.